This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. Here we go, the greenest on this side of Kermit the Frog. It's Bob Olin. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, Dave. How's the weather there? Uh, pretty nice, a little overcast, you know. <laughs> We're obviously yeah. uh, hoping for a little rain. Beautiful weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. In fact, it's been a little too dry, I guess. But uh, we got rain in the forecast pretty much every day this week, at least uh, the chance for showers. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we'll take it if we can. Uh, pretty interesting. We had that real, real heavy snow load. And, of course, there wasn't any frost to the ground. But a lot of that got absorbed. But uh, that goes away pretty quickly, and water is certainly the key to uh, to good growth. But, boy, the landscapes are lush and they're green. Get a chance today, we'll talk about the uh, magnificent apple blooms, both crab as well as edible apples. Ah. They're spectacular this year. And I'm assuming your Harrelson is uh, budding out right now. Uh, the leaves are there, no uh, no flowers yet. No flowers yet mm-hmm. at all, huh? No, it's been pretty well, delayed here this, this, this year. You've been a little cooler where yep. you are with the lake effect there. Uh, you just get away from the lake a little bit, and the and the, uh, the apple bloom is spectacular right now this year. So maybe your maybe your uh, <laughs> is going to take a little rest, although it consistently uh, does produce, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. In fact, uh, year after year lately, it's been every other year for many years, and lately it's been every year. So we'll see how it does this year. I know the uh, dandelion crop really popped up over the last couple of days. <laughs> Well, you got, what, another day or so of no mow May there, Dave? Yeah, well, I've already eliminated that uh, that for this year. It's, it's been mowed twice already in May now. Yeah, with that moisture, but, uh, that things, have, yeah. things have kind of taken off. And, of course, uh, you know, that was... But the pollinators need not if, worry. They'll be all back again by later this afternoon. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, the lines certainly are a big part of that. Isn't it interesting how things change? A, there was a time there where... Uh, People did want to tolerate any mm. broadleaf weeds, nothing flowering, not a dandelion in their lawn. So there was a lot of herbicide that was a plant applied on a regular basis. And for some folks, they still prefer that. They prefer, uh, uh, I guess, a living astroturf out there. But now there is definitely an awareness. So we need the pollinating insects. They need something to feed on. So now we've got broadleafs. We've got bee-friendly lawns. And it's kind of an interesting mix that we got going right now. And... Uh, <laughs> I think for some people that don't want to spend a lot of time, effort, and money, uh, just letting it, uh, letting that lawn go is now socially acceptable up to a point. Mm-hmm. Now, we still want a lawn. I'm certainly not a lawn grass, actually. Got kind of a bad rap for a while. It's one of the best uh, ground covers you've got. And where we get into trouble environmentally is when we have open soil. So people want to think a little bit about that. A lot of the erosion. A lot of the potential for uh, contamination in the watershed uh, certainly comes from soil. Uh, a lot of the phosphorus is attached very tightly to the soil. So bare earth is what the, is the biggest problem, certainly not grass. Grass great ground cover, properly managed, properly fertilized. We don't want to over-apply anything at any time. But you do this thing, you handle it properly, and, and the, your grass is a great ground cover. And we talked a little bit about this no mobe concept. But, uh, it's surprising how fast that spread. Okanamowak is where it started. And uh, I think just started on a voluntary basis. Now they believe they have an ordinance over there wow. uh, where they, they won't even let you mow your lawn, <laughs> at least not uh, not technically in the, in the month of May. And now, of course, there's a little bit of a kickback to that. And uh, part of it is really the fact that uh, what do you do come June 1 if you haven't mowed at all? You're going to be out there haying. 
and you're going to have to pick those grass clippings <laughs> up, and they're going to have to be removed, and you're going to have to compost them or do something with them. So, uh, and I mentioned this before, kind of an advocate of just uh, setting that mower as high as you possibly can and continuing to cut maybe one inch off and then let those clippings lie. Now, we've talked a little bit about the fact that uh, that color green is, is uh, there because of the chlorophyll pigment. Chlorophyll is a molecule, and it's the molecule that's really responsible for all life as we know it on Earth because it obviously takes... Um, CO2 from the atmosphere in the presence of water and gives us oxygen as well as the sugars that we all survive on. Uh, so very, very essential, but it really is a magnesium surrounded by four nitrogens. So when you clip those clippings and let them lie, uh, that nitrogen on those green clippings actually gets reincorporated down in the soil and uh, is beneficial and you can minimize the amount of uh, nutrient that you have to get in addition. So uh, clipping, letting those clippings lie rather than letting that grass grow and then raking things up. But if you mow high, then you still have the flowering clover that will remain there. there and the dandelions will, they'll adjust, uh, they'll they'll get down there. They're still gonna have plenty of those dandelions around if, even if you mow high. So I think that may be a, a good viable option for people coming in May, and that's obviously what you've been doing there, Dave. You bet. Hey, Bob, let's get to the phones right away. we got a question already. Good morning. Who's this? Good morning. This is Barb from Hunter Park. Go I ahead. have a, I have a strange thing happening this year. I've never had this happen on my lawn before. It's all these little tiny tree sprouts all over in my gardens, on the lawn, and it just... Mm. Have you? I mean, some of my... Neighbors even have it, but I don't know what. I do have a couple maple trees, but I mean, one's in the front and one's in the back, but they're all in the gardens. And, and yeah, can you identify the type of sprout that you've got there? Is it, uh, is it coming from the maple seed? That would be the most likely candidate there. Some years. I'm not sure, but it's some of them when they start growing, they're a little red maybe to them, but yeah. That sounds like maple to me, to be honest with you. And, I mean, uh, you know, there's some... Never seen it before, yes. No. Well, it's kind of interesting because everything kind of does react to the, the type of year that we've had. And uh, we had plenty of moisture. A lot of that, uh, that those seed uh, pods were set last fall when there was plenty of moisture. So it could be that that, that is what triggered it. Uh, there are certain mechanisms that go on there, but... Uh, you know, their their annuals are coming from seed, so they're going to you can easily eliminate them at this point with this shallow cultivation, and obviously uh, just mowing will will take these down. You you're not going to be establishing a maple forest if you continue to mow. So I've been pulling them not, out. <laughs> what, oh, you've been pulling them out, have you? Yeah. Yeah, but I got some of them yet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you'll notice there's a pretty distinct separate there, so they're they're not really considered evasive. They're not going to spread except by seed. So, um, you know, it's kind of a curiosity more than anything. And uh, if you're going to just shallow cultivate or pull them out, as you say, uh, that's probably the best way to remove them. So they shouldn't be too much of a problem. But every once in a while we see every year is just a little bit different. And uh, now we've got uh, some changes in the climate going on. So I, I think we can expect a little bit of this. Uh, some changes uh, begin to see certain things at different times. But I think that, uh, as you mentioned, what you described there without actually seeing the leaves but emerging with kind of a red foliage, that that certainly uh, looks a lot like uh, maple. I think that comes from all the seed that was set last year. 
Okay, I have one more question. I have Surely. daffodils all over my gardens, but I have this... Great. Oh, few. garden. Okay. Okay, I have these few in the front. The leaves came up and no flowers. No flowers. Okay. Um, it is a little bit if unless something's changed. And now uh, sunlight is the first thing that I, I think of if we're not setting flowers because uh, uh, the flower really is a mechanism that requires extra... Uh, chlorophyll, extra sugars to be produced. So is it possible that um, that's partially shaded there? Is is that the issue? Not really. Oh, it's pretty grown off. Yeah. Oftentimes trees will grow. You mentioned the maples and so forth, and they get larger in size. And so you can have daffodils, which are among my favorites. There's so many wonderful varieties, and they naturalize. In other words, you can plant them once, and then they're good and hardy, they're deer-resistant, uh, so they really fit into the landscape pretty nicely right now. And you don't they don't require a lot of additional maintenance, but if they have been blooming for a number of years and they suddenly stopped, uh, my first uh, thought would be sunlight. The sunlight's been reduced, and that oftentimes can come just from the growth of uh, a lot of the trees that might be surrounding that particular area. I don't have too many so that, trees left in my yard anymore. <laughs> Oh, okay, one after a time. Well, I, I would say, you know, it can be that, and you you obviously are not doing a lot of fertilizing. Uh, sometimes we can over-fertilize. We get a lot of vegetative growth at the expense of the, of the flowering, but sunlight, maybe poor drainage. If we've got a heavier clay, that can be an issue there as well. So they're the type of thing that uh, you probably, if you want to do it and they don't at all for you, you might let them go another year, and then you can uh, possibly find a little sunnier location. Those bulbs could be moved again in the fall, spring flowering, but we want to get them right. uh, lifted okay. and planted coming into the fall. So you could uh, you could still transplant them. Uh, daffodils have a lot of variability. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we have the classic yellow color, but uh, there are certainly a lot of... Uh, uh, bicolor varieties out there that have some very unique appearances. There are a lot of beautiful white uh, daffodils, or we call them narcissus. One your choice there, one and the same. But uh, uh, they really are a, uh, a pretty magnificent. The only thing is the bloom lasts, particularly in a warm period like this. The bloom lasts um, maybe about two days, two weeks. That's about it for the max, I think. And that's the only downside to them that I can see, really. They, they are pretty nice uh, in most landscapes, for sure. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the call. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Bob will take a break and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show coming up. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on a Tuesday, the 30th of May, about to wrap up the merry, merry month of May. And June will be busting out all over come Thursday, Bob. We're getting late in the season already. <laughs> Isn't that something? And uh, days obviously still getting longer. Isn't that kind of nice? Makes yeah. it getting up early in the morning, even for you, Dave. Uh, <laughs> Now, I know you've got to be an early riser. Yeah, i got a couple but, hours uh, of dark before it finally comes up at 5.20 this morning. 5.20, 5.20, okay. Yeah. And uh, do you get, uh, you at least when you get up and get in the station, you still have a hint of the daybreak, do you not? No, nah, it's pretty uh, pitch dark yet. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm here a little after that. 3 usually, and it's still pretty dark by then. Wow. Yeah. Talk about being an early riser. Yeah. Just maybe... Maybe it's almost like noon for you. That's why you're always so uh, chipper and spry. Hey, early to bed, early to rise. It makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, but I missed out on the wealthy part. <laughs> well, there's still time, you know, Dave. Oh, maybe that's it. I have to wait a while <laughs> yeah, yet. Just, 
Yeah, I'll wait a little while. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, I do want to touch a little bit on uh, maybe uh, fertilizing out there in the mm-hmm. landscape right now. You We've got a good sponsor there, of course, in uh, Garden Green, the product from the Western Experience Sanitary District compost product. These products are really good. When I look at the apple trees, people often ask about apples. And uh, apples are going to be on our uh, focus on the radar because what I'm seeing out in the landscape, my own experience, a little warmer here, Dave, but, boy, the bloom is very, very heavy. Now, each individual tree can uh, can vary from year to year, and we have this alternate bearing habit, and some are more responsive to that than others. That just means flower buds, of course, are set in the fall. If you have a real heavy fruit load in one year, then there's not enough energy to really set flower blooms for the next year. So we get this on-off period. The following year, there's light fruit, and then there's plenty of energy left to to set blooms for the next year. Now, commercially, uh, you know, this isn't desirable because you like a crop every year. So when they have real heavy bloom years, they tend to, they do drop those blossoms. We can do some of the same thing, but we usually generally wait until fruit is set. And when that fruit's about apple size, the tree itself had a real heavy year. And I think for a lot of people, this is going to be a very, very heavy apple year. Uh, you might want to wait a bit, see where that fertilization occurs, how much of those, that was actually fertilized. If you got good pollinators and all the discussion about uh, bee-friendly lawns and leaving areas in their rustic uh, wild states so that we've got cover for a lot of the pollinating insects, hopefully this will help. And um, we'll get some good fertilization that occurs and very heavy fruit load. When that fruit gets about apple size, the tree will start shedding it. If it's real heavy, it'll naturally drop some. But you can help out and drop a little bit more of the additional fruit. And uh, actually, I did a little work one year and found that uh, the tree supports with about 20 leaves, supports one good size uh, fruit or fruit spurs. So you might want to think about that. You're not going to count leaves, but you might want to get a little gel idea how much fruit uh, you might want to leave on the on the tree itself. So that's coming up here. We'll wait until the fruit gets set when it gets about apple size. For most people, if it's a real heavy fruit year, you will want to drop some of that fruit uh, so that it, um, it'll kind of even out and give you a not a blank year next year, but kind of a, a, a good performing year next year as well. Now, uh, in terms of fruit and fruit production, apples, as well as um, our deciduous trees, are really not heavy, what we call heavy feeders. Uh, they don't require a lot of nutrient. But this time of year, I think if you're going to fertilize, this is going to be the time to fertilize that apple tree. Um, and you want to, you know, you want to uh, go from maybe about two, three feet from the stem and push it out beyond what we call the drip line. So if you're going to be fertilizing, let's make sure we get some fertility out where the new growth the new growth on the roots of the tree are going to be just on the extension of the tree's canopy. In other words, if you can imagine an umbrella, the drip line of the tree, you want to be out beyond that. Make sure that fertilizer gets applied uh, maybe a foot beyond that drip line of the tree. You can use just a uh, conventional lawn fertilizer there, or you can use uh, compost. Certainly uh, compost is kind of nice because it's, uh, it's not real nutrient-rich, but there is nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, as well as trace nutrients. And they bleed so slowly into the uh, into the soil over the course of the season. So, if you're going to fertilize at any time, uh, this would be the time for the um, all your deciduous trees, including the apples. And I think that would be a good idea. We're going to have people probably uh, buying trees right now. I know the nurseries have been very busy, mm-hmm. 
and um, they're going to be planting trees. So again, maybe a couple quick pointers on that. Um, probably the first decision you're going to make with your apple trees is uh, the variety. And if you deal with uh, local dealers, and uh, I'm a big advocate, of course, of a lot of our local, I'll use the generic term on pop uh, nurseries, some of the local nurseries where, in fact, they're a little more careful about variety selection. The stock tends to be very good. Um, I've observed that um, even if you're buying by variety, a lot of these varieties can be grown farther south, and they really don't perform quite quite as well. So really an apple tree will use it as an example, but any trees that are going in the landscape, this is a long-term investment. Don't be afraid to pay a little more for a quality tree that's been locally grown. We're very fortunate. We've got one of the um, the largest, if not the largest, wholesale nursery producer uh, in the Twin Cities area, just east to southeast of St. Paul there. And uh, they produce very, very high-quality stock. It's not going to be inexpensive, but nonetheless, um, when you think of it, over time, you want to start with high-quality stock. So I've, I'll have to admit, I've even bought some lesser-quality material because of the price, and I've been very disappointed. So oh. I think that uh, you want to make that investment initially, get the good varieties, and we have so many good ones. Uh, Honeycrisp, of course, great big apple that people want to plant. Remember, again, that was introduced as Zone 4. So if you feel comfortable, you're down near the lake, you got lake effect, um, you're down along the St. Louis River, Valley there or over in Superior, Honeycrisp should do just fine for you. But for most folks, you get farther north on the North Shore, you work your way up toward the range. If we have open, if we have warm winters, covered winters, it'll do fine for you. But over time, and this has been my personal experience as well, because I've had to cut down two now that just finally gave up the ghost, and I'm not zone four, but about the zone three B, a warm zone three. So uh, you can't necessarily depend on Honeycrisp being your best tree, but we've got so many other varieties that are really zone three, including your Harrelson. That was introduced, can you believe it, Dave? Uh, take a guess at when that was introduced by the University of Minnesota. Uh, way before I've been around, I know that. <laughs> well, I don't know, Dave. Uh, no, probably you're right, before both of us were around. <laughs> 1922. Oh, yes. So that that one goes back a long ways. And I remember when Honeycrisp was introduced, they said, well, we won't have anyone planting Harrelson. Or, you know, we've got another, what we call sport of Harrelson. Harold Red has a little redder fruit, but the genetics are still Harrelson. They said that'll be the end of Harrelson, and that's not been the case <laughs> at all. Uh, that's kind of a go-to tree. You're going to start there because it is good at winter hardy. It's long-lived, particularly if you, uh, if you buy it on the, uh, the natural the rootstock. It's going to live for you a long time. It's a great cooking apple. It stores well. If you if we have a good year, it can be nice and sweet. Can it not, uh, Dave? Late in the year, it, it tends to be a little tart if we uh, if we harvest them too early. But in a good year, uh, it's very nice. It's very hardy. Uh, probably almost to zone two, but certainly in zone three, and uh, it it really is a, a very very nice tree. So there. There's one for you, and we've got so many others that have been introduced that are really hardy. <laughs> Zestar is another one from the University of Minnesota. Uh, you can even go back to the original apple, which was introduced uh, by Peter Gideon. Now I'm pulling this from my memory, so I yeah. hope I have this about right. But uh, Peter Gideon um, actually was a pioneer. He came in from Ohio, moved into southern Minnesota, established a farmstead on Lake Minnetonka, and he did 
uh, look for seedlings. We just had crab apples before, so a lot of the crabs you don't have to be quite as concerned about hardiness. It's the edibles that we're more concerned about. Yeah. We had a lot of crabs. We didn't have any good eating apples. Uh, the state of Minnesota uh, was just opening up. There were a lot of farmsteads, and people were really looking for um, uh, food sources. So he just started looking for a lot of uh, seedlings. He brought them in from New York. He brought them in from Maine, and he trialed uh, hundreds and hundreds of varieties. And his first introduction was, as I recall, in 1868, 10 years after uh, statehood. And this was the wealthy. He never got wealthy. He uh, actually was uh, lived very modestly and uh, never made a lot of money on any of his ventures, I guess. But nonetheless, uh, wealthy was named after his wife. And the thing that's rather remarkable, that's still a good apple. Wow. It's still in the trade. Uh, I'm establishing a, a trial orchard uh, myself, and uh, I've got wealthy in there. Uh, it's still readily available. It's still a very good apple and been around since 1868. So I, I think some of these oldies but goodies are going to be with right. us certainly for a long time. Bob, we've got to take, a, a take another call real quick if you got time. Oh, sure. All By right. All means. Go ahead. This is June, and I, I like to talk about apples. I have fireside, and I also have a beak, which I really like. But my yes, question I like is why are why are my rhubarb seeding so early? Oh, I've noticed the same thing. And uh, she's referring to these seed stalks that jump out. It's just the fact that there was, there was plenty of moisture in the ground, and then now we had these warm temperatures. So it just kicked those seed heads out very, very quickly. And it's generally advisable, of course, to cut those because they're just draining energy from the plant. And there are actually a lot of rhubarb cultivars. I mean, we spread them around, and people don't talk a lot about apple varieties, but there are a lot of rhubarb cultivars, and the breeders actually use that seed and make crosses with that seed. For us, once you've got it established, your rhubarb, it, it's really a non-productive portion of the plant, so I'd get in there and I'd just uh, cut it off with a knife at the base level as soon as you can. But that was really a function of getting started early, plenty of moisture, warmer, Soil temperatures. Now, this was the thing that uh, surprised me this year because I do track soil temperatures. Didn't have any frost in the ground. So as soon as we uh, uh, melted all the snow and then a little bit of that water drained off and then the upper two to four inches of, of soil where a lot of our growth occurs, soil temperatures jump very quickly. They run right up to 65 and 70. There are years in the heavier soils where we don't get those kind of soil temperatures until mid-June or even later. They were up early, and the rhubarb responded to that accordingly. So it set fruit uh, very, very quickly. So there, there's uh, my take on, on what happened this year. But I've seen exactly the same phenomenon. Lots of seed heads get out there with your knife and, and cut them off. And actually, we're not far away from harvesting rhubarb right now as well. Yeah. Also, one other thing. What is the best? Uh, fertilizers to put on. We usually always put cow manure, but I'm not. Don't have availability on that. What is the best all-around? Uh, I should say, I suppose, uh, fertilizer to put on rhubarb. Okay. Uh, again, another another good point there. Uh, it would really be your choice. You mentioned the the cattle uh, fertilizer has a high nutrient, high nitrogen content. 
You can use a little granular fertilizer that has high nitrogen, that first number, something like a 20-0-10. Depending on where you live, if you have a heavy soil, you're in the greater Duluth Superior area where we've got clays and clay loams. We really don't need a lot of phosphorus. What we need is nitrogen, and the nitrogen should go on now, if not two weeks earlier than this. But right now would be fine, particularly if we get some rain coming here. Because uh, all of these nitrogen fertilizers really need to be carried. And so you can use a granular fertilizer. Don't over-apply, but the rhubarb will actually be very responsive. So that would be one option. And you might follow that up with uh, just a good compost product, either your own compost or compost that you can buy, and then spread that around the plant as well. So that gives you kind of a very slow release. Organics are, are really nice in many ways but they don't give you that real shot of nitrogen you'd like in the spring. So you can get the best of both worlds. Use a little granular fertilizer, something that's high in the in the first number. You probably don't need the second number of the phosphorus and a little bit of potassium. Spread a little, little bit of that around. If we get some rain this week, if it went on the ground surface, uh, that'd be great. If we don't get rain, you've spread it on the surface. These are the synthetic fertilizers now. You want to water them in. Because they tend to, the term we use is denitrify. That nitrogen came from the air, it wants to go back, and then you've lost it unless you water it in. So a little bit of that right now scattered around the plants, followed up with some compost, and uh, that's really all those plants are going to need. But they will respond very nicely to that. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for the call. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. We've got to run here real quick. 945, taking another break. Be right back with more Bob Olin coming up. And back with more of the Bob Olin Show here on the 30th of May already. I guess you can get your uh, most of your plants in now, right, Bob? Yeah, we want to watch uh, watch the forecast a yeah. little bit. Uh, we have a very warm season. And I think uh, certainly for this week, uh, I think we're getting off to a good start. I'd still be hesitant on some of the peppers and tomatoes. Uh, keep okay. them alive, get them purchased, but uh, watch it, watch those forecasts. We have been surprised in the past. And uh, you're not going to gain a whole lot uh, by by going too early. But nonetheless, all the cabbage family, and you can do a lot of direct seeding. Uh, we've actually got corn up already this year, so that's a little surprising to me. There was enough moisture apparently in the soil to get the jump. So uh, things are going. If you're going to plant uh, certainly potatoes, and we've got so many great novelty potatoes now, specialties. And actually, it's, it's kind of like back to the future. So many of these really came from Peru, but there's a lot of interest in the fingerlings now and there's interest in the uh certainly the purple uh, potatoes they have more nutrition than a conventional white potato but nonetheless uh those are great crops we get a little time there we can go till almost till mid-year and still get a good harvest out of those so but a lot of things are certainly coming you can direct seed uh, just about everything at this point beans peas you name it anything that's going in the garden the only thing i'm a little bit cautious of certainly would be some of the very frost-sensitive materials. Get them in, get them growing if you like, but be ready to cover in the event we get one of those surprise events because uh, statistically that can happen right up till about June 10th or June 11th. And uh, every once in a while, about every third year, we get surprised by one of those very, very late frosts. But we're off and running. We're going well. Uh, we get a little rain this week, and uh, I think you're going to be very pleased if you get a chance here to get a little, little bit of something in the ground. You know, a lot of questions there, Dave, about um, rhubarb, certainly, and it's a great crop for us. And, you know, people just kind of chuckle a little bit about it because it's so easily grown here. 
Uh, you get farther south, and they can't easily go. It's certainly a northern crop, and uh, they can't grow it easily. And there's nothing, in my opinion, like a, a fresh rhubarb pie. I think that's absolutely uh, fantastic, in my opinion. It's amazing what a little sugar will do to that rather uh, bitter, sharp uh, taste of the rhubarb. But nonetheless, easy to grow if people are having trouble growing it. It can be fertility. Oftentimes, once again, it's sunlight. Now, just like as we saw with the daffodils, people will say, well, my rhubarb patch all of a sudden stopped producing. That can be trees that are growing, more shade. It also can be uh, encroachment from a lot of lawn weeds or any type of, a, of an aggressive uh, weed. But typically, it's a sod or something that grows there. Just lift them. It's getting a little late to do that. You could probably still get away with it now, but lift them and move them into a location where you don't have any competition, uh, certainly from the grass. So eliminate the competition. Uh, get yourself a little more sunlight. Talk a little bit about fertility for that crop. Uh, get that on right now and use a little bit of a, of a compost or well-rotted manure as a follow-up uh, nutrient source through the rest of the season, and you will be very pleased. It's a, it's a crop that when it's divided, it really is very happy with the, uh, the new space that you provide for it. But oh. let's not overlook that one. Easy to grow, yeah. and uh, uh, certainly there's a lot of uses and a lot of utility for it, Dave. Easy to grow, and I think, does it spread on its own, by the way? Not not real easily okay. or real aggressively. you gotta, yeah. you got to get in there, and you have to really divide the... Uh, okay. we got a very, very fleshy root, uh, and you got to get in there, and you have to section that. So it's very easy to move around, right. but it's not, not going to be invasive. It's not going to be aggressive. It has a root system that produces uh, uh, some of these buds, but it doesn't really have an aggressive underground stolen system like a grass would so forth. All right, Bob, we got to take another break, and we'll be right back for the final portion of the Bob Olin Show. It's 9.52 here on KDAL. All right, Bob, we got time for another quick question. Hi, who is this? Go ahead. This is Matt. This is Matt. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I'm, I got. I live up in the Saxon Bog, and I've got a couple maple trees that are starting to lose their bark. Would you recommend wrapping those now, or is there anything I can do to save them? Oh, there's a good question. Um, describe a little bit about that bark loss. Is it uh, oriented one direction versus another, or is it all the way around the entire um, circumference of the tree? It's all the way around the circumference of the tree, and the diameter of the trees are about, oh, four inches, I suppose, four to six inch trees are smaller, maybe, but I'd like to save them. Yeah, I can understand that. Um yeah, that is, that's a little unusual. Uh, are these on mineral soil? You mentioned you're in that beet region there. Are they grown on mineral soil, I'm assuming? Yes, and it's very uh, damp, obviously, in the spring, and then it does yes. dry out. We have put some uh, some extra, oh, some compost and stuff around the trees to maybe get them roots to cover up the roots a bit, but they were actually... Uh, in, a, in, in surrounded by willows and whatnot, and we cut those out to expose the maples and to make them more prevalent. And I'm just wondering yes. if maybe that was too much of a shock for them. Well, you know, my my actual concern is, uh, you know, they're making it, but I'm concerned about drainage uh, there, particularly when you reference the willows, which, of course, love the, the moisture conditions. 
just wondering, is there anything, uh, do you experience that? You never experience standing water, do you? Because maple well, would the, actually, go ahead. In the springtime, it'll stand, but normally it, it, it drains out in the summer. Yes, uh, yes. You know, um, I really think I really think it's a it's a drainage issue. Um, soils that are very very moist. The trees obviously are making it, but they're struggling. Uh, if there's anything you can do to improve the drainage, even if it meant um, you know cutting in some drain tile and trying to wick some of that, it's a little bit of effort, but uh, uh, you try to wick some of that water off that particular site or location. It'll help everything that grows there actually but I, I you know based on what you've described I think we have a uh, we have an excessive uh, moisture issue is, is what I'm concerned about there would you recommend wrapping those trees then or just let it let nature take its course uh, I don't think I'd recommend wrapping if it was oriented towards the south I'd say definitely wrap uh, these look like sound like they're a little more mature they might be uh, 10 12 15 years old as the growth slow on them uh, well, they're actually once I exposed them and got them got got sunlight to them, um, they're they're doing actually quite well. They're leafing out very nicely. Um, the color's beautiful in the fall. And yeah, I think sunlight. You know, there there's a good option that's also going to help dry things down a little bit for you. Um, if they're older trees, and how old are they approximately? Oh, I'd say probably ten to fifteen years. Yeah, about 10 to 15 years uh, growing slowly. I think you should have a pretty good bark on the outside. Uh, I really don't think there's a need to wrap them at this particular point, and I don't think I'm a little concerned about wrap. You never want to put it on right now because you get moisture that accumulates inside that wrap, so it's just really for winter protection. And uh, you're probably at the point where you get enough bark out there so that you're not concerned about voles and other things. I think uh, continuing to do what you're doing, if you can take down any more willows and more sunlight, anything you can do to improve the drainage, I think that's going to help. And actually, I, I think that they might recover a little bit better now that we're getting good, uh, good leaf surface out there, and you might see an improvement in the overall health of the trees. Hey, thanks for the call. And, Bob, we got to wrap things up here. Time has run out on us, but you'll be back again next Tuesday. Absolutely. Everyone get out there, do a little planting before the rain, and you will be rewarded. Thank you, Dave. Have a good show. You bet. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located inside Dan's Feed Bin on Hammond Avenue in Superior, and by Matilda's Dog Bakery and Pet Nutrition Center in Lakeside across from the Lake Walk. News, weather, sports.